0: You're listening to Grace Geltman and Weld on the Hammer Factor.
1: Take it away, boys.
0: Okay, it is February 21st and we are recording Hammer Factor episode number 43. Would like to introduce my co-host on the show today, Whitewater legend, outspoken co-owner of Immersion Research and master of the rant, John Weld. As well, I would like to welcome back Policy Director for the Outdoor Alliance, North Fork Champion, and Poker Superstar, Lewis Geltman. My name is John Grace, Nat Geo, Adventure of the Year Green Race Organizer. And I need to come up with something kind of snarky for my third little thing there.
2: I can come up with something. Let me okay. work on that. Okay,
0: yeah. So- I've been thinking about the introductions.
3: I feel like... I'm not sure I, like, deserve to be introduced as North Fork champion anymore. It was, like, five years ago, and, you know, like, Dane is the North Fork champion. And also, I feel like, Grace, you're the only one without a kayaking introduction, and you're the most savage kayaker on the podcast, I would say, fairly hands down. I mean, Weld's done some badass expedition shit, and I could probably show you some, like, neat eddies on the Little White or something, right? <laughs> I feel like you have the, the longest kayaking resume on here,
0: but Well let's uh let's start with what's if I'm gonna leave out North Fork champion, what should I insert? I don't know. Just... we can talk about like when you're really gonna pop the question, how many years is hmm. too many,
2: you know right. like <laughs> potential husband. Uh, potential how husband
3: on, how did we get on this
0: track? <laughs>
1: you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> North Fork champion it is <laughs>
0: Uh, Real quick before we get into the show here, um, and this is kind of on a serious note, I want to offer some condolences here to the friends and families of Sam Grafton and Christian Wood. Um, Last week, uh, those two young men passed away doing what they love, paddling uh, Sam out in the Pacific Northwest and young 17-year-old Christian Wood on the James River in Richmond and... I don't really want to get into a discussion about that I know we talked a little bit about uh, before the show that that may be something we dive deeper into but really the only thing is is as those accidents and you hear about those things you've been around kayaking long enough they have a culminating effect and I don't know I don't really know what to say about it but I just want to offer that from myself and I'm sure the hammer factor in general
3: so yeah for sure man well well said, man. Just yeah, it's it's a tough thing to wrap your head around. I mean, I didn't know um the the guy who passed on, on the James, but you know, Sam was a friend of mine and super fired up Paddler and super good dude and just you know, a, a pillar of the khaki community in the Northwest and just
0: yeah, just a hard loss, man. Yep nothing good with that but you know just give the best to the friends and family and maybe at some point we'll talk about this more in depth here on the hamper vector but today is not today um we have a good show written up um big thanks to john weld here on the show notes these are the best show notes in the business you got to go to the website and check them out um i have to kind of edit these down a little bit from what gets um, passed on but we have uh we have Joe Pulliam on the show. Um, Joe Pulliam, if you don't know who Joe Pulliam is, he is the recently retired president of Jackson Kayaks. He was one of the co-founders of Dagger. A long I time ago. I think the founder. The founder of Dagger. As far as I, I know, didn't know he was
2: working at Jackson. Yeah, they brought him on at some point. I want to get to. The, he, I'm so excited about this guest. I, I he sits on so much information about this industry now. Whether we can pry it out of him or not is another question. But. Uh, fascinating! Absolutely fascinating. Yep, I agree. I'm. Su- I had a
0: interesting flight home with Joe um, from an outdoor retailer show some years back, and uh, man, I learned so much on that two hour flight. That it is very exciting to have Joe on. We were going to have Kenny on.
2: Kenny Unser, a surprising Hammer Factor hit. Yeah, yeah. We've made him. Can we say we've made him into a superstar? Like what? a sort of a Gangham style type cold following <laughs> well he said certain- yeah,
3: that was really good man i like was seriously dubious about the ability to articulate you know like i, I knew that subject matter was interesting but the ability to just describe that in audio format to me was like seriously
0: impressive
2: if well, he wrote he wrote he wrote like a couple days later and said that he had some clarifications to make on his data and then also evidently with some help with john grace and andrew holcomb students he has calculated the exact day and time which the green race uh, will be will be brought below 4 minutes which is going to the be person s- the water level the boat he knows it all <laughs> he he does and let me back up a little bit if you ha- if you didn't see
0: the show uh, if you didn't and, listen to the show last week we went over how to rig the lottery for these river permits and Kenny came up with some incredible stats and ways to you know kind of tag team that approach to to get the most out of your application and as well, I don't know if we ever brought up the Green Ray stats before, but Andrew Holcomb had his students at French Broad River Academy in uh, the middle school extrapolate all the data, use several different I don't know, statistical analysis formulas to come up with a date. Kenny got a hold of it, added some more stuff to it, so that's gonna be super exciting to go over.
2: He's discovered who's going to do the who's going to break the formula barrier, and I think his answer is gonna shock you. It's gonna shock everybody. Really? I'm just gonna leave it at that. Yep, you're gonna be blown away.
0: Hmm.
2: All right, we'll tune in
0: for that next week. I'm
3: <laughs> well, well, well it's taking a break, writing like BuzzFeed headlines to, to, to podcasts. I'm, I'm trying to bring some sizzle to the show, guys. You're killing me.
1: Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: let's uh let's jump right in here into uh, some policy um topics here. We have we've kind of perused through the headlines and which one do we want to get into here? Lewis, I'm gonna let you grab a hold of which one of these uh topics here that we want to talk about. One that one that you think you have the most insight on.
3: I don't have the show notes open. Um I, I was in DC last week though, which was entertaining as always. Um I uh what's what's that look? <laughs>
2: Um, Why would you have the show notes ready while we do the show? I, <laughs> it makes perfect sense. But go ahead. We just like to to free
3: things loose and free flowing. I right? don't want to get too bound down by by anything. You know, I, I feel like you guys are here to, to keep it on on the rails, and I just kind of kind of bounce around, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I went to this. Uh, I went to this meeting at. Uh, so we had the the policy staff from all our, our member organizations in town last week to just kind of have our, our annual meeting and just do a lot of uh, plotting about this year and everything. And that was cool. But later in the week, yeah, I uh, went to.
2: I always picture these these things happening at Hooters. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> of course you do.
3: <laughs> like man, those guys. <laughs> <laughs> if I had gone to law school, I'd be going to meetings at Hooters all the time instead of designing gear bags. <laughs> right, right, you are <laughs> exactly right. Oh man, um, but dude, so yeah, so I went to this meeting at, at Department of Interior with uh, with Surf Rider. Those guys are cool. We're we're keen to work more closely with them, and uh, they wanted to go to Interior to meet about uh, you know Zinky's Order trying to open up basically everywhere to offshore oil drilling. I'm sure that was you know in the headlines a couple weeks ago, and
0: except you know, off the coast of Mar-Logo. Yeah.
3: yeah, exactly. Which you know the reason they did that is that um, Rick Scott, the governor of Florida, is a Republican, is getting ready to run for Bill Nelson's uh, Senate seat. Bill Nelson's a Democrat in Florida, and so you know they wanted to like do this favor for rick scott by making it look like he was a big man like he had like had this meeting with zinke and then got florida pulled off the table for offshore oil drilling note all oh, by the way that rick scott is a republican recognizes that it's incredibly unpopular to open up everything to offshore oil drilling but setting that aside we went to go to go talk to these cats at interior about this so we go into this meeting and the guy we're meeting with is like the director of external affairs or something like that. And this, you know, he's for sure younger than me, like, I don't know, 30 year old kid. And he goes, so we go in the guys at Surfrider are like, like, where do I know this guy from? I know this guy before. And they had had some kind of like, like public debate about, uh,
2: dancing with the stars.
3: <laughs> so they, they, they had this like, public debate about, um, you know, like, one of the big issues this guy's work on is, like, plastic bag bans because those, like, plastic bags, you to the grocery store just end up in the ocean and, you know, kill wildlife and, you know, there's, like, giant floating islands of garbage in the Pacific. And so this guy, they'd had this debate and this guy had shown up to debate in favor of plastic bags on behalf of, like, some libertarian think tank or something. It's like, can you imagine anything more soulless than being, like, like my, you know, like, this is what gets me up in the morning is defending the plastic bag. <laughs> So like that's where this guy came from. Yeah, you know, like which is just like totally the stereotype of the Trump administration, right? It's like that's who you get is some like like 30-year-old libertarian think tank dude bro who spent his life like defending the plastic bag. So we go to this meeting and this guy comes in, he's got his, his coffee mug. And the coffee mug, I'm like looking at it and it's like I'm like I can see that it's it's the the Patagonia logo, but it doesn't say Patagonia on it. I'm just like scratching my head, like like what does that say on there? so we're going around the room and like, they have a really good group of advocates. It was like the mayor of kill devil Hills from North Carolina and a bunch of folks from the outer banks and just kind of all over the East and West coast talking about, you know, the potential impact of offshore oil drilling on their communities. Nobody wants this. But anyway, it comes around to me and we're talking about, you know, public input on this process. And I'm like, you know, like asking them to kind of, I'm like, you know, clarify for me like what kind of public input like really resonates with you guys like what are you looking for you know and i like i brought up the monument stuff in passing and like you know like we brought a lot of comments we're really engaged on this issue and these guys just are like like into just like angry arguing defensive mode immediately And the guy's like oh the monuments that's what this is for and he turns his coffee mug around and it's the patagonia logo but it says propaganda on (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, this Burn. Is like, <laughs> Burn. <laughs> it's like it's like Patagonia, and so I'm like the guy's like he's like, what is it you can't do on the monuments now that we've rolled back, you know, the monuments protection? And I'm like, well, I, you know, I can go, I can't go climb Indian Creek without looking at a an oil rig, you know? He's like, well, what is it you can't do? I'm like, well, it's not about you know, accessing these places is about keeping them in a pristine and desirable condition. You know, it's an experience. It's not just like your ability to show up there and, you know, me and the oil race can just like go hand in hand <laughs> <laughs> He's like Yeah, it's like there's no there's no oil in Bears ears and I'm like, I I I can look at the map right now, you know, we have this GIS analysis and you can see that there's, you know, parcels that are made by the oil and gas industry. It's like obviously there's an expression of interest there. You can also, you know, look at the map and there's the you know the two split up pieces of bear's ears and you can see the like giant uranium player that runs right through you know the newly opened up areas and the guys are just like what is it you can't do and i'm like recreate not in a uranium mine
1: (laughs) you know at that point
3: i'm like i gotta like i gotta go you know like, like let's just let this issue go like we're here to talk about offshore oil drilling but like to me the takeaway was you know, like these guys are incredibly defensive about the monument stuff. It's like they feel like they've gotten taken to the woodshed by everyone about what they did there. And to me, it's like, all right, let's let's keep it up. You know, it's like they we might not have gotten what we wanted out of that process, but it, it could have been a lot worse. They could have rolled back a lot more protections, and they are obviously feeling incredibly touchy about all of it. So, like, I, you know, I I felt positive about it. I was like, like let these guys. Be- <laughs> pissed off at everybody because like let's let's keep letting them know that we're not stoked on what's going on over there so that was
0: kind of fun (laughs) and so what was the result of the meeting what how did it all come out when it came to that was there did you ever get back to the oil drilling or
3: yeah for sure i mean and they were just like well you know like we we really like appreciate public input and i'm like i'm like kind of rolling my eyes at that point but and, you know, and they're like, the other you know, people from North Carolina are like, well, we've we've had the county commissions, you know, have all voted to, you know, and opt to oppose this, you know, opening up of these areas to oil drilling. And they're like, well, every county commission or like every county commissioner, it's like they're just, you know, they just want to poke at it because there have got to be one person somewhere whose voice they can elevate and say, oh, yeah, well, this guy says it's a good idea. So... I don't know. I mean, they are I mean, it helps, you know, but they were like, oh, we're going to, we put everything on the table and then we're going to, we're going to roll it back. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like, like like that's the tactic. You know, Like your opening bid is everything. Get everybody, you know, exceptionally angry and then do some fraction of, of what you originally proposed. And then, I mean, just like, just an absurd way of doing business. But anyway, I mean, to me, the lesson is just like keep it off. Like keep leaning on these guys. Like let's like make it harder for them to do this stuff. And you know we might not get everything we want, but it's going to be better than if we sit on our hands. So anyway, that was fun.
0: <laughs> I would love to be a fly on the wall, <laughs> just knowing you. I would. I just start laughing when if I was in that meeting. <clears throat> you know, something off topic yeah. here.
3: You also talked, uh, Nal-Chucky Wild and Scenic with, uh, with Burr's staff and, uh, Alexander's staff. And how did that go? Um, they're interested. I mean, I think that it's like they kind of view this campaign as like nascent. Like they haven't heard a ton about it yet, but nobody was like, that's crazy. Like we're not into it. So it sounds like what you guys are doing down there is, um, heading in the right direction
0: yeah i think north carolina i think we're, we're we're really crushing it on the tennessee side but on the north carolina side we definitely got to figure out a little bit more to do there but that's really cool that they were at least talking about it it's in somebody's ear
3: <laughs> yeah for sure man and alexander i think is, is a pretty pretty reasonable guy like I, he's you know by the standards of you know his republican colleagues he's you know pretty decent on on public lands and wild and scenic rivers and stuff like that so i would uh
0: that's not a that's a, that's a worthwhile conversation to have for sure. R- Real quick before we start, I'll touch on this National <laughs> Park Service um, director story um, that involves um, what is the lady's name there who uh, uh, lost paddle? Um, Barb Barb Brown. Before we get into that, so I was out shooting this rate, this this King of the Hammers moto race out in the desert. Of California, north of Palm Springs. Okay, it's like seventy thousand people. They go out to the desert. I'm out there. You know, they all just like it is it is just they're just they're there to burn fuel as quickly and as powerfully as they can, you know, and they are just <laughs> raging up these dry creek beds, moving boulders, you know, like huge boulders, you know, like half the size of car boulders. They're just spitting them out of their tires they are taking not even the racers just like the spectators they all got these utvs you know what a utv is it's like a it's like a four-wheeler with
2: seats beside each other yeah,
0: yeah like I, just like yeah yeah anyway and there
2: there are there are some circles who view this as a as an outdoor activity
0: yes okay so there, there's two points here exactly so and it was an outdoor activity you know they were all outside doing it and uh so they're just raging across the desert everywhere. So you could
2: everywhere. go outside and burn tires, and that would be an outdoor <laughs> thing. Right? Essentially what they were doing. But listen, this is well, king well, of the hammers the racing.
3: Like like body fat
2: level of the <laughs> UTV enthusiast. You're going to get me way <laughs> yeah, off what track. What was UTV there? BMI? Let me, let, me, <laughs>
0: let me stick to my point here. So anyway, they are like at night lighting off fireworks out in the desert. They've got these huge bonfires going on. They're staying up all night. People are just straight up drinking, roosting across the desert, like at 60 miles an hour, just destroying shrubs and anything in the way. Just like, bam, just like going up these creeks. I mean, it's total mayhem. And I got after the first night. I sat down with some of the guys in the racers and whatever. started hiking home. (laughs) I'd start digging a hole. And and all they did was bitch about all the BLM regulations. And in the back of my head, I'm like, what regulations? (laughs) What What more could you possibly want to do out here? I mean, you are doing everything that you could possibly ever want to do. I don't know what else. The, would I hope be they're the planning on, like,
3: parking your car in the driveway for a month and saying 50 Hail Marys <laughs> after that. <laughs> anyway,
0: I, it just kind of talks about, like, the super defensive guy that you were bringing up in your meeting, that this mentality of, even if it's just, I'm just, I'm just like, realistically in the back of my head, I'm like, well, I wonder what they want to do. I mean, they're out there, like, shooting guns. I mean, it's, dude, it's rad. I mean, <laughs> I hate to say it, but it was weird that they were demonizing the BLM. Um, when I when I die and go to hell, that's where I'm going to fucking wake up. <laughs> right. Um, let's move over to uh, this article. This article – I don't know what – we'll have the link in the show notes, but this article is on uh, the new director for the National Park Service, Paul Daniel Smith. Essentially, he was in a scandal some years back where um, he granted permission to for Daniel Snyder, who was the Redskins' owner – to cut down a bunch of trees along the Potomac so he could have a better view of the river. It just so happened that these hundreds of trees were on the National Park Service. Now, um, I guess this really lit a fire under uh, a paddler up there named Barb Brown. Um, What do you know about this? Have you seen the house? What's the view like? Do you guys have any insight on this? This is kind of your... Ballpark. I'd
2: like to point out we become kind of like a like a tip line too. True, like the WikiLeaks. Of- I mean, this <laughs> is
3: like a this is like a six month old story, but
2: <laughs> well, someone just <laughs> dropped this. Some anonymous person, or a person who sh- who who's the source we're gonna have to protect, dropped this. And
3: did not place. know about Barbara Brown's involvement in all of this, but it's uh, I mean, just again, it's like, can you pick like a more comical? representative person of this administration's priorities than the guy who helped Daniel Snyder cut down a bunch of trees on the National Park Service land
0: (laughs) for a view I mean
3: just like like (laughs) I was just like racking my brain this morning I I heard some (laughs) other gossip about this guy but I just I can't quite put my finger on what it was I feel like I had another good story I wanted to tell and I'm just like it's eluded my feeble mind unfortunately
0: did did you read the link to story the I, I, The link to story, the story that was in the show notes that was linked to. I love how they justified this by getting a new appraisal for his house now that they cut down all the trees and he has a better view and he had to donate that money to the National Park Service.
3: I'm sure Daniel Snyder doesn't care. He's there. He's already enjoying his ill-gotten gains from the like $15 beers at FedEx Field and $50 parking. <laughs> I mean, Daniel Snyder is like, like like a cartoon villain. For I mean, this is, this is not the subject of our Sports Talk Radio <laughs> podcast. But there's, if you want to hear how people in Washington, D.C. feel about Dan Snyder and his uh, stewardship of the Washington Redskins, there's no shortage of information for you out there. he is everybody. I mean, he's just awful. <laughs>
0: he's the worst, man. What, what about this story? Where is it? What Do you guys know anything other than what was in the article? It's like it's upstream of
3: Great Falls. It's—I uh, mean—he cut down these trees. This is probably like six years ago at this point, and
0: about maybe even more. Well, but, he got a promotion to the director of the National Park Service, so he did something right. I think he's interim director, right?
3: <laughs> acting director?
0: No, he's the director. He's the new director.
3: I don't think. I think he's
0: acting director. Oh, I didn't know there was a difference. Anyway, um, moving on. Are you guys ready to move on from that, or do we want to dig any deeper? Yeah, we got to keep moving. Yeah, we got. Yeah, we're twenty minutes. You in. want to talk about
3: that BEA stuff, or do you want to? Should we save that for another day?
0: Mm, we're gonna to have to save it for another day. Basically, the BEA stuff is the Bureau of Economic Analysis says that the outdoor um, industry is a three hundred and seventy billion dollar industry, but it includes a 100 billion dollar line item for motorized vehicles, a 50 billion dollar line item for boating equipment and so on and so forth and I don't even know where like mountain biking and kayaking would even
3: Well, so here's the thing. This is uh you know, Outdoor Industry Association has put out their numbers about the outdoor recreation economy for years. We've talked about this in the past, you know, their number is 887 billion dollars in consumer spending. So, this you know, last year or a year and a half ago, Congress passed the, the REC Act, which basically directed BEA to do these economic analysis and kind of quantify the impact of outdoor recreation on GDP in the same way that it does for other economic sectors. And the reason that, that BEA's number is 300 and some billion dollars and OIA's number is $887 billion is OIA's number is consumer spending. So it's like everything you spend on outdoor recreation. The BEA's number is GDP. So there's different economic measurements. Like those numbers are not like one. It's that BEA number doesn't do anything to like discredit OIA's number. It's just a different economic methodology. And the reason that um, you know all the motorized stuff represents such a big chunk of this is that it's GDP. So it's like gross domestic product. So all of that stuff is manufactured in the U S or not all of it, but like a huge proportion of it is. So, you know, so much of the equipment for our activities is manufactured overseas and all that economic activity counts towards the GDP of some other country or not all of it, but that it doesn't, uh, you know, for this particular economic measure, it doesn't count in, in the same way as like a bunch of that stuff that gets manufactured in the U S. So, I mean, again, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but we've looked into, you know, we've done like some kind of light economic research in the past at OA, and we really wanted to kind of become more sophisticated consumers of of economic research so that we could, you know, potentially commission some studies and, you know, develop our own economic arguments, basically. And like what we kind of looked at through, or we kind of learned through that process was that there's just, You know, there's tons of different ways to measure economic activity and all of them have utility and value to them. There's not like one that's correct and one that's incorrect. It's just different ways of looking at this phenomenon, you know, like any sort of economic number that you create only tells part of the story. So, like, for example, here in Hood River... You know, real estate prices are really high because we're we surrounded by all of this, uh, you know, these outdoor recreation opportunities like that difference in real estate value here versus somewhere else. That would be a measure of economic value or you could say, you know, what is it? What's how do you subjectively value the opportunity to go recreate somewhere on any given day? And that, you know, under certain controlled circumstances, that's like a legitimate way to measure economic value. Or you can count consumer spending, or you can count GDP, or you can count whatever. And all of these just sort of tell a different part of the story. Like, there's not one number that's the definitive answer for any of these things. And actually, that's one other thing about that BEA number, is it only counts... Um, economic activity that occurred more than 50 miles from your house so like you know for me i mean what you know i go kayaking 200 some days a year but you know probably you know a huge proportion of those are within 20 miles of my house right
2: right so anyway
3: (laughs) It's, it's interesting. interesting, but it's not like that doesn't do anything I mean, to... You know, the
2: described. problematic thing for me about that was how what John just described going on in the desert is part of this industry according to this study.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. for sure. For sure, no doubt about it. But
3: anyway, anyway that, I think that's also a pretty extreme example, right? I mean, there's plenty of guys out riding motos and Gifford Pinchot who have a lot more in common with us than they do with the guys who just want to fuck shit up out in the desert
0: anyway i don't know i'll I'll link to that in the show notes you can you can look one thing i thought was interesting about that uh economic analysis article was that uh the outdoor industry was rising at a much faster rate than the gdp so that just i mean to me that's a general trend of people playing outside more so that's cool i guess I don't know. Um, moving on to a little bit of viewer mail. Um, man, we get a lot of viewer mail, and this is definitely my favorite part of the Hammer Factor. Do you guys like it when I it's, forward... It's you? getting
2: out of control, the amount of viewer mail we're getting. I mean, we're at a point now where we can't come close to answering all the mail that we get. Exactly. But do you guys enjoy getting those, just seeing through those emails and I love the, the things that people get? I, I, that's one of my favorite parts of the Hammer Factor. But and, and I appreciate the fact that people are looking to us as the final word on paddling subjects
3: i appreciate that it usually includes some level of shit talking
2: yeah right. yeah, yeah yeah
4: definitely
0: the the tone is very uh our people if that makes any sense <laughs> um but a few of these i want to go over real quick we'll get into some a little more in depth um i'm just going to throw these out wait wait,
2: okay wait wait this this is the way this is going to work right we're it's a it's a this is how we're going to do it it's going to be a new segment We always have new segments. This is our new segment where it will be one of us will read out the questions and another, and this will be a rotating cast, right? One of us will read out the questions, and then another person will respond to it very quickly. So it's five questions in under 30 seconds, right? 30 30 seconds each each question or all five? Total. Okay. Total.
0: Hang on. Let me get ready. Let me get prepared for this. Okay, so
2: today you're going to read the question.
0: I'm going to answer it.
2: Okay. Then you're going to read the next question.
3: Okay. Wait, I don't get to argue with you about them? what's
2: that i don't get to argue with you about it you could at the end but you're not you're gonna be in complete agreement all right let's do this let's do this over the past year we have become one what fun is that <laughs> no you can you, chime you, in you afterwards just, just sit back lewis and you'll get your chance too because next week uh i'll i'll ask you the question and you can ask grace okay all right you ready <clears throat> hold
0: on we need, like, some game, game show. show. Oh. Ding, 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 okay. ding, 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 ding. All right. Fernand, this comes at us from Fernando Palacios. Bow lines or no bow lines for safety? Uh, over five boats, yes. Under five boats, no. Okay. Robert Fleischel, should I buy $75 sweatpants from I.R.?
2: Robert, no. You should not buy $75 sweatpants from IR. You should buy $15 pants from Old Navy. And then go over to GameStop on your way home and get a new gaming chair with bigger cup holders.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Ramon, does Weld laugh like Beavis or Butthead? It's Butthead and Ramon, you're banished from the show. (laughs) Bernie, Bernie Engelman.
2: Mm. Bernie, is is Boone a good place to live for Whitewater? No, Boone is B-list, not A-list.
1: Ooh.
2: You can live. Listen. You could eat a red lobster once in a while. You could. You could do worse things. Did you not eat red lobster every night for four years? Okay. Moving on. Chico, yeah. It seems like yeah. the U.S. is the only place that names
0: rivers with the whole fork thing. Are Americans mm-hmm. just too lazy to come up with different names for rivers?
2: This is a good observation. No, we're not lazy. We're stupid. That's an important distinction, and it seems like this was written for someone who's not in the U.S., and I, I feel prope- compelled to, to tell them that. Okay, this says more about Americans' relationship with natural resources. They name things in a personal, utilitarian way rather than any name that has uh, empathy or uh, connection. All
3: right, I got to argue with you. Okay, okay well, come on. That was fine. fine. All right.
2: Was I
0: under seconds? No, that First was all all like... All, it was f- like 50 seconds. We'll do better, but <laughs> let's... Uh, Okay, Lewis, which one would you like to uh, rebuttal on here?
3: I want to argue about all of them, but I especially <laughs> have to
0: with the last one.
3: I mean, you can never go wrong with describing whatever Americans are doing wrong to being lazy because that's usually the answer. But I, uh, I don't think they're being stupid. I think it's smart, man. It's like it makes sense. It's like then you understand how the river system works and you can visualize it. If it's all just a bunch of random names and everyone has named their river like after Fred or whoever, then you just, you know, until you have the map,
2: well, I actually after you mentioned name. this. I was like, maybe he's right. So I looked at the, I looked at Google, Google Maps and he was right. Like you go to New Zealand, every fork has a different name and it's usually someone's name or it has some kind of uh, convocation of the place. But America's just like left fork, right fork. But don't you think you go I... up here, you can go up the left fork and then that's where we're going to take all the trees out. But all those <laughs> names are
3: probably uh, all those individual <laughs> names. I mean, that's probably all just like colonialization, right? It's like, oh, like like I'm going to name it after the first white person to ever come here and. And, and and see it, you know. Okay,
2: well, you're wrong. That's your, <laughs> what else do you have a uh, you have an issue with?
0: I got uh, an issue will. with uh, with Boone not being a good place to live for a while. I'm
2: not water. saying it's in a good place, but we're talking about a list, right? A list. Like I think where I am right now is an a list place to paddle, but not an a <laughs> list place overall. You know what I mean?
3: You think you have better paddling there than Boone?
2: I think, yeah. Have you ever I heard do. of the Wataga or the Linville yeah, or the
0: Nolichucky or the Elk
2: or, or... No, I think... No, no. Okay, let me put it this way. I think we're on par with Boone. How far is Boone from the green? It's uh, probably two, realistically two hours. Boone is an a, a place for road biking. If you want to road bike, Boone's a place, A-list place for that. But I don't think we live in an A-list place either. A-list places. Hood River, maybe Bellingham, mm-hmm. Asheville, right? A-list. That's pretty much it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I mean, if, you go, if you go B-list, you're opening up to like 200 places. All right. Do you have any others for these emails here, um, Louis? Fernando P- uh, Palacios. I hope I'm getting his name right. He he was machine gunning us with emails, and he actually he actually asked another really good question. Of uh, the dangers of boot, uh, of dangers of booty beer, and uh, just to make a long story short, he was concerned that drinking beers out of a booty at the end of the river was bad for could could make you sick, especially like in an expedition type setting. You're drinking beer out of a booty, and uh, he was I've concerned got a great about this. for yeah, Don't that? swim. Don't swim, I mean, right? And he's like, should we? Should that? Should like drinking <clears> booties? <throat> is something we approve of? Well, I do approve of drinking out of a booty if you swim. That's a and b. I wanted to get to the bottom of this story. So I called our own in-house doctor, Mm -hmm. medical doctor. Dr. Rocco. Dr. Rocco Lasala, who is the uh, uh, medical something of pathology here at WVU. And here's what he said. He said that the smell you're getting from booties, and I I assume that's when we talk about it being gross, drinking uh, uh, beer out of a booty. is from the nasty smell. It's from uh, commensal bacteria. Bacteria that's all over us. And the way he put it it turns that that sometimes gets a rancid or putrid smell, but it's all over you and quote, you could eat a mountain of it and not get sick. Okay, (laughs) okay. I think
3: you're more likely to
2: get sick from the water left over in the booty from the river. But as we all know, you're getting a ton of water in your mouth during paddling anyway, so the booty is not going to factor into that. So Fernando, yes, we approve of drinking beers out of booties and no, you should not worry about getting sick from this. When do you think the
3: booty beer started as a kayaking tradition? I feel like 90s. it's a, a relatively recent vintage. Yeah, mid nineties. I wouldn't have even guessed that old. But you probably maybe know better. Later,
0: yeah, maybe even early two thousands. I think early two thousands, first booty yeah, beer. I like, feel like there's
3: so many. There's there's a lot of things that are that are going wrong in the world, and a lot of trends to bemoan. But I, I feel like the booty beer is a really encouraging innovation. I think that's a, uh, a sign of progress. People are doing do that.
2: Yeah, I think it's um, brought us together as a community. Yeah. Can I make a suggestion? Let's bring in our guest. And we have two more emails that came in that deserve a, a more thorough answer than our than our five emails in 30 seconds. And I think our guest would actually be interested in at least hearing us discuss this because I know he has personal involvement in both of these stories.
0: Okay, before we bring Joe on the show here, I want to give a huge shout out to our feature interview sponsor. This interview with Joe Pulliam is brought to you by Canoe & Kayak. Canoe and Kayak has been leading the paddle sports media hustle for 45 years, now reaching a half million paddlers every month. With in-depth articles like the one on Secrets of the Green River Narrows, which I personally thought was super interesting, I'll link to that in the show notes, there's no more compelling way to get your paddle sports beta than CNK. Check them out at canoekayak.com and on Instagram at canoekayakmag.
2: I'm so excited to have uh, Joe. I'm introducing you, so just hold on to your horses for a minute. Joe is maybe the most important person in whitewater kayaking. Anything you've ever done in a whitewater kayak, you owe it to Joe. And and he is going to reveal all of the secrets. If there is a deep state of whitewater kayaking, <laughs> it's Joe Pulliam, and he's gonna he's gonna spill his guts in today's show, whether he likes it or not.
0: Well, Joe Pulliam, welcome to the show, and uh, you are on the Hammer Factor.
2: Thank you. Yeah, this is going to be awesome.
0: Now, Joe, so you, yeah. you, let me do a quick introduction here before we get into it. Joe, you were one. Were you the founder or one of the co-founders of Dagger? Co-founder. There were four of us. There were four of you that founded Dagger. Okay, mm-hmm. and then before that, was that your first um, job in whitewater, or were you doing what were you doing before that?
4: I There was a group of us at Clemson that made boats together, and that became Perception. So I went away, did other things. Bill Masters stayed around, made it into a legitimate, quote unquote, company, and, and I'd say that about any kind of company. Not picking on, not picking on Perception. Um, and then I came back and ran marketing and sales there for five years at Perception. Yeah, starting in. Oh, 1982. And I guess you could really trace it back. Well, you know, it depends on what you call a job. You know, if you want to go back to earning earning side money in college, I started making boats in 1973. So, um, yeah, I've been at this a while. Hell, yeah. And so then after uh, Perception,
0: what was next uh, from that point?
4: I actually – there was actually a brief – a brief uh, stint between perception and the founding of Dagger where I was in charge of marketing and sales for Blue Hole Canoe which was um, a company on its last legs and I thought I could go in and help turn it around and that, that lasted only a few months um, it, the, the, the problems there were not Ones that I could really fix. The problems were not uh, were internal, not external, and it uh, involved some of the ownership of the company and big big internal rift. So I couldn't help much with that. So anyhow, um, uh, we in 1988 we decided to start a new company, which became Dagger
2: did you what did you study in school? I mean did you ever, ever have a job outside of? Force?
4: Yeah I mean I went to Clemson and uh, which was yeah, it's uh, 30 miles from the Chattuga, so it's uh, a nice location and um, I worked for my first four years out of school as a ba- at a bank and I still never say I was a banker because I I don't know after about a year I think I realized this was this is not me. I'm living for the weekends. This is not what life is about. But I stayed there for a, a while longer to um, to uh, not be quite so broke and to um, get some get some some real world experience. Whether or not that ever helped down the road is debatable. But I, I think it did. I think it, if nothing else, when I went in and had to talk to bankers about borrowing money, I could. I think just telling them that I had a banking background gave me some credibility. When you're when you're in a small town and knows you and has any experience with you, and you tell them you want to borrow money to to uh, a canoe company, that's a pretty tough sell. So I think having a, having a little bit of credibility from working at the bank may have helped some. You you
2: know the secret handshake. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so in '88 you started Dagger. With who did
4: right. you start with? Steve Scarborough, Pete Jett, and and Roy Gwynn.
2: And what was the what was your guys' idea? I mean, you guys made a lot of canoes at first,
1: right? But was yeah. kind of the well, too?
4: well, we really we really never were a, a a totally a whitewater company in that we made we made boats from early canoes from early on that were not uh, specifically whitewater focused. I mean, the, the whitewater canoe market. Certainly was more significant then than it is now, but it was it was uh, it was a too small of a market to think that we were going to support four families and uh, and any employees doing only whitewater canoes. So we did we did other Royal X canoes from the from the beginning. So you know, I mean, like like most companies, did we have some grand plan of here's here's what we're gonna do and here's where we're gonna go and yeah we had some things written down to take to the bankers and and um and other folks but it was uh you know, we were we were we were day we were day-to-day and mouth and literally uh hand to mouth for uh, for a couple of years there and it was, it was uh, interesting times so how many how many years was
2: dagger a standalone company i mean you guys got acquired later on we'll get to that but years. Ten yeah,
4: years. March, April. We were officially incorporated April 15th, 1988. All right. Easy to remember because it was tax day. We sold the company in June or July of 1998. So we were a standalone company for ten years.
2: And so all four of you remained involved, or did some of
4: you guys well, bow Pete, out? Pete had co- Pete had moved to Colorado. And was not uh, daily involved in the company uh, for the past uh, for the for the last few years there, right? And so you guys started making canoes, and then
2: you started making kayaks as well. What was your like? What were the first designs that came out of Dagger? To well, sort of- the
4: first, you know, the first design was the Response, and um, which I don't know how much any of you remember that boat, but it was it was sort of uh, it was. Largely left up to Steve's, um, what he what he wanted, what he thought a whitewater canoe, sh- a whitewater kayak should be. And Steve puts put a very high focus on um, emphasis on speed. And that boat, in uh, at least in in um, a lot of situations, is it was very fast. Um, it was lacking in some other ways, but it was. You know, it was it was fast. Um, we had Chris Speedus involved, and I've done a lot. I've been paddling with Speed a lot in those days, and um, felt we sort of got him involved to add add more credibility to the white to the to the kayaking side of the company. I had uh, I had a, a certain amount of of street cred, but I think he was his his background was and fame was uh, certainly surpassed mine, right and was interesting. Yeah, he really liked the design right from the start. We tweaked it a little bit after we, t- we took it to, uh, I don't know if you know, the dip on the, uh, on the, on the um, Tuckasegee, uh, just downtown Bryson City. We took it. that was the very first place we took it. This is a wooden, proto- you know, wooden prototype that we needed to, to make the plug from. So we didn't want to do too much damage to it. And so we took it there and it was, you know, Steve and Steve and I, and, um, and Chris liked it right away, you know, that was really encouraging. But also, uh, Gordon and Susan Grant happened to be there uh, having a picnic with their kids. And Gordon says, mind if I get get in it? And he got in it and he was like, wow, you know, I really I really like this boat. And that gave us the uh, the, the uh, courage to take it straight on over to the NOC and had a number of, remember Tommy Dequeer, uh, <laughs> Um, a couple of other folks there got in it and pounded it right away and liked it. And yeah, so we did, made a few tweaks and that was our first boat. I
2: took a, cl- I took a class from Gordon Grant when I was like 12. At yeah. the a- Hill Outdoor Center.
4: Yeah.
2: <laughs> so, so from 88 to 98, the sport starts to change. I mean, at least in my opinion, it starts to change a lot. Things start to get crazy around the mid nineties. Yeah. Uh,
4: I mean, what was your take on that? On that growth? Well, it was crazy, but it was fun. You know, the thing the things were growing. Yeah. Um, the the market was growing. The evolution of, of boat design was happening at a you know a really fast pace. You know, from from boats getting getting shorter and shorter to you know. Total totally changing the the perspective of of volume and the. the and how that affected boats, and then uh, a few years later, the the uh, the, the the transition from uh, to uh, to planing hulls or you know flatter bottom boat, all that happened really quickly. And all it, I mean, going into going into the into the into uh, the 90s, boats were still 12 feet long. You know, that was that was a short boat, a dancer answer was eleven seven you know it's about how long votes were and the the response was eleven even right so, yeah, we went from that uh well we cut that length in half almost there in, in just a few years
2: so in 98 how many people did you guys employ when you when you sold
4: about 140 to 150
2: Wow. That's crazy. I mean, midway through or, or towards the end, I mean, did you feel like kayaking was going to be huge or did you see the crest, the peak of the the, the curve coming?
4: Oh, uh, you're talking whitewater or you're talking kayaking? Let's, let's
2: just, I mean, how about
4: both? Let's go either way. Well, ki- you know, I, I think I think whitewater kayaking has some, it has some natural uh, uh, ceiling factors that, that, uh, Every, everybody's not gonna, not gonna be willing to to deal with, it. and uh, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I couldn't predict wh- where that was going, but I could predict that it was never gonna going to be huge. Um, I felt like recreational kayaking would would continue to grow, which it certainly has. What I, I would not have foreseen the fact that the really big players the biggest players in, in kayaking now are companies that most whitewater kayakers have never even heard of companies like pelican and and um, and future beach and and these brands that sell the most boats and they're selling 299 kayaks to Walmart and Costco and Exporting goods and etc. If
2: if you think if Dagger was around right now and you were still r- running it, would would that be where you were going as well? Do you think? I mean, would that be the no way.
4: No.
2: no way? Why is that?
4: Because because we you know the companies that make those boats are plastic manufacturers. Yeah. They're plastics manufacturing companies who find markets to fulfill. Right. We were we were a kayak company and um we made kayaks the best way we knew how to make them.
2: So you guys sold in in 90 in 98 to Watermark, right? Do I have that right?
4: Yes. And what was, was that
2: like? Were you just like this? Now I'm on vacation forever, or was it a sense <laughs> of relief, or,
4: well, <laughs> or you yeah, stuck around we, for a little bit, right? Yes. I, I, I thought that I thought for sure that I would sell the company and then and uh, go off and do something else. And yeah. uh, um, you know, I, in between all this that I didn't mention, I. I Pursued but never finished a a, uh, a degree in environmental sciences, and I my expectation was to that I would sell the company, uh, go back to uh, go back finish up my degree, and um, and probably do some work in that field. But I ended up staying on and working for, uh, for Watermark, which was the sort of out of the, out of the out of the blue name. It came up with for the combination of dagger and perception, and um, yeah. So you know, it was the whole the whole process of selling, the process of working now for other people, it was uh it was interesting at first. First, pretty good. Later, not so good.
2: And then, watermark in turn sells to confluence, right? Yeah. I mean, explain. I I've never understood what like what's the thinking behind a big company getting it, coming, looking at something like Dagger and being like, we're gonna, or a basket of boat companies and be like, we're gonna bring all these together under one. I mean, it just seems like if you have that kind of money, there's a million other ways to spend it that's not in paddle sports. Like who are these people that are doing this and what do they have? Like what's their thinking Do you?
4: Well, I do think you have to question their wisdom. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I think that's a valid, a valid thing to, uh, to do. Um, um, and I think like in, who was Watermark? in retrospect, they probably all question their wisdom too. But, right. Um, I mean, uh, were they looking, did Watermark look at the growth
2: and be like, oh, this is going to continue just like this for the forever. And we're going to, we're going to ride this rocket or.
4: Well, I mean, they, they, they look at, they look at, you know, external factors and they're looking at, okay, they can see that there's, you know, a growing, uh, interest and participation rates in kayaking. And that's. Right been growing, growing steadily, they see uh, that the potential for growth lies more in the in the recreational side. And they, the, the big thing that's, and they think with more, more promotion, the fact, uh, but the big, the big thing they see is increasing distribution. You know, we're going to grow kayaking by selling kayaks to people in places. That you guys have never even considered selling to, right? And, and and we did. Fortunately, that was never done with the Dagger brand, um, but 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 we did, and and we grew numbers pretty substantially, both in terms of for, for the first couple of years, both in terms of uh, what I what I call enthusiast level boats, which which includes whitewater, and in the uh, the recreational boats. So
3: they're like th- their vision is that they're gonna help spur, de- like they're going to take these boats, cultivate a network of dealers in Iowa, and get a bunch of people who've never thought about kayaking into kayaking, and that's going to be where yeah. the growth is going to come from?
4: That's part of it, but also the, the, the thinking seems to be that by, what they the, they call this a, a roll-up roll-up, I guess is a term in the A mergers and acquisitions world that means you know, taking taking two or three of the largest uh, competitors and making them into one one company, and that gives you a, a tremendous advantage in the in the in the marketplace. I think what they miscalculated there was it doesn't necessarily work when you're dealing with a bunch of kayakers. We are normal, you know? right. and and so, it's, well, it's, it's not just us. I mean, it's not just us as manufacturers and 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 it's you know it's our our customers don't necessarily you know that's the retailer that's really the end consumer too don't necessarily play by the rules yeah and and so what yeah wouldn't be doing this
3: well just kind of getting hit this earlier but like like who are these guys like I'm imagining like a bunch of like like 28 year old kids in polo shirts coming out of like business school being like I got this the spreadsheet here that tells me I'm going to take well, over the whitewater industry. Like, to do
4: all this, like, like, these,
3: like where do they come from? Like, those how those
4: do they find you guys? Hired hands. <laughs> <laughs> the money, you know, the money for this watermark thing was all from a company uh, from the first Islamic investment bank. And really? yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's that's uh, that's who who um, who funded the deal, and it, that that became later became Crescent Capital. And later, uh, some number of years later, went bankrupt. But Dagger was their very first acquisition. And that same evening, um, they purchased, uh, they per- purchased, um, closed the deal on, on uh, Perception. But they ended, up, they ended up, and later, you know, they, we brought some other brands under the watermark thing, including, most notably Yakima. But but they owned Church's Fried Chicken. These all happened after Dagger. Church's Fried Chicken and a uh, good coffee, um, um, and, and an airplane company, Cirrus Aircraft, really cool airplanes.
2: I told you, <laughs> deep state. That's what I'm getting at. This
4: is fascinating. <laughs> so
2: at what point, I mean, you worked at Watermark for a little bit. I mean, I'm, I'm picturing at some point, this whatever was going on at Watermark became completely unrecognizable to you as any kind of functioning like, oh, what's it. the
3: corporate structure like 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 who's the boss and like what are they I'm just <laughs> I'm like fascinated by this sorry I don't want to
4: <laughs> yeah well, this, this could be this needs to be a long conversation so you're know, sitting around a campfire with with, uh, with some good bourbon but uh, uh yeah we went through you know several CEOs um, and which was something you know I was asked if I was interested in in the CEO position. And I, I said, no, I, I had no interest in, in, in that. And, um, it, it, we, it was unrecognizable to me and it was, and it became intolerable to me. Um, and, you know, for, for better or for worse, I had some financial incentives that kept me there. I mean, they were paying me very well and, um, uh, much more than I was ever used to making uh, by owning my own company, and they, um, and they, uh, um, uh, yeah. I mean, they were these were not bad people. They were they were good people. They just did not understand our business, and really didn't listen to the people the people that did. And the last couple of years were pretty pretty rough. But had I had I left early. Earlier than than you know, before we sold, I would have walked away from, you know, from from uh you know from some money that that uh, came in very handy when I was um, putting kids through school and and the like. So
2: did the I mean, did your pro? I mean, how was Dagger as a as a product? The products of Dagger do during that time? Were they still? Do you? guys still have good designers on board. I'm thinking of like Mark yeah, Lyle and
4: Chris. yeah, same people: Steve Scarborough, Mark right. Lyle. You know, Andy Bridge was involved. Um, various, right. yeah, yeah. So,
2: so Confluence comes along and decides they're going to one up all of this,
4: right? No, no. no. Um, we, um, yeah, I, I guess people in that world always know what's what. What companies are for sale? So we we found out that that um, Confluence was for sale. Ah. So we made a we made an inquiry and then. And Confluence um, at which point
2: was what? Like what, what was in Confluence?
4: Confluence was um, Wilderness Systems, Mad River Canoe, Voyager, and Waysport. I think I got that
2: And okay. we, we, like we had you and Crescent?
4: Yeah Anchor, uh, Crescent really so there were some conversations back and forth and a little bit of shared information and then two of the guys from Crescent Capital and I got on a little Cirrus aircraft and flew up and landed in, on the, at Dulles Airport, which is pretty fun. I mean, it was a little four-seater, you know, tiny little airplane. I think we could have landed sideways on the, on the
2: runway. And you're so lucky we, you did. Those things are like flying coffins, I think. <laughs>
4: <laughs> um, anyhow, we land we land up there, and we had uh, two, two other guys from... Our, from um, from the from the operational side of Watermark, meet us, and we went to the to the uh, headquarters of um, American Capital that owned that owned um, uh, Confluence, and we had a chat with them about, about you know they made their presentation, they made their pitch to us on on uh, buying their 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 business, and, and so we pursued that, and that sort of morphed into a Maybe we should look at this at a as a joint venture, and and then we were at a board meeting in Portland, which was where we were moving the headquarters of the company to, um, and we got literally got a fax from them saying we will um, we want to just turn this around. We want to buy we want to buy your the the paddle sports side of your company. And uh, so it, that led to it a total flip-flop, and that led to Yakima again being a separate company under the, under the uh, Crescent Capital ownership, and Confluence um, became um, the collection of brands that now included Systems, wave sports, etc., but now includes also dagger and and perception and whatever else we had at the time. We did sell a little um, life vest company, P F inflatable P F D company that we had a few months earlier than that to uh, to K two, um, but they they acquired everything else. And we were about we meaning the Watermark brands were oh I can't remember numbers, but we were we were. Somewhere between one and a half and two times as large as as the confluence brands. I huh. do you think they, that then they made they made some total total and then I, I was then I was not involved anymore. That's when I left.
2: That's when you left.
3: Do you think uh, that that dynamic of being like we want to sell you our company and then flipping it and being like actually we're going to buy your company is that like a ploy? Is that like a common thing or is that was like, that genuine?
4: Do. I, well, first off, I, I don't know that anything, that I would consider anything that happened from the other side of that transaction as genuine, I, <laughs> I, 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 I hold in pretty, um, not so great regard to the people that I was having to deal with there, um, and um, they are long since gone, so that um, that's enough said there. Did you have um, them killed, or what? what happened? <laughs>
2: At some point you must have been la- I mean, at some point you must have felt the absurdity of what was going on. Because oh, you started in a garage somewhere, you know, outside of Clemson and all of a sudden you're being floating around on private planes and having meetings with you know, these gigantic co- I mean gigantic money people. I mean there was some
4: Yeah, no, it was were- it was bizarre. I mean you know the 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 um the Crescent Capital offices were, were on the—I don't know—I don't know what floor, but anyhow, they—they—they they, they were a floor of the Four Seasons Hotel in downtown uh, or uptown, I think they call it in Atlanta. I mean, right. literally, I mean, that's the only time I've ever been in a Four Seasons Hotel in my life is when I would go to their offices.
2: We looked through. at that real estate IR did, but yeah. <laughs> we took a pass.
4: <laughs> so <laughs> you were—they the yeah, they, they, had—they their boardroom had leather leather flooring
2: yeah <laughs> as it should have
4: <laughs> uh, yes, you did. so
2: you were right to so say when conference took over they totally did something but you didn't finish that i wanted to
4: well they, I, I was say, they made some really significant mistakes in my mind it's basically they 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 got rid of all i mean they, they moved everything from from north carolina to south carolina and every and, and but kept they kept the sales team that knew how to sell the wilderness and percept, wilderness and, and wavesport and the Mad River brands although I don't know they really knew how to sell the Mad River brand um, and brought all that down here and they, they did, didn't they, they did no planning in front they did no upfront planning on a transition at all. And there was there was months to have done that. They had months that they could have done that. So they brought all these boats down here, and we had we had really sort of dumbed down our boats. It just sounds negative, and somewhat is negative. But but we had dumbed down our boats to so that they could be made and on um, the equipment that we had, which was you know, not as sophisticated surprisingly as what we had at, at Dagger. And um and then what what Confluence had was were very hard to make. more sophisticated by sophistication, I'm not necessarily saying better. I'm just saying more complex. I guess that's a, a better way to put it. So they brought they bring all these complex boats from North Carolina down here and try to make them on these machines and on this equipment that really is not designed to make these type of boats for example you got uh, that you guys can relate to would be would be kiss-offs around a cockpit mm-hmm. yeah, yeah those things are those things are a bear to make I mean, that's really really hard to really hard to do it takes a lot of a lot of focus on getting the heat in there and 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 get the, get the warm light. they just weren't set up to do this kind of so what are for people out there what are kiss-offs uh, kiss off is where you have the the you now what's the easiest way to explain it? Um, anything where the the, the mole instead of having a a, a distance between to the top a top and a bottom to where they meet. Mm-hmm. So uh, around the cockpit, um, for example, the the you have little drop downs where the 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 combing comes down and meets the top of the, the deck of the boat mm-hmm. and it stiffens stiffens it up right as you would see in a jackson many
2: jackson and jackson boats. Still right, right. Still. So those are kiss offs
4: those are kiss offs yeah sorry okay thought you were smarter than that john i know
2: john, what they are i just there's stop. a lot of people out there who don't I
4: know john grace knows what they are <laughs> so moving um, on so what happened after that
2: you left at that point right or you right. you were gone so i
4: left my parents were it was, my parents were dying. It was a bad, you know, bad. My parents died um, um, within the within a year after that, or so. And my dad and my dad died a month after my mom did. And it was just sort of a, a challenging time. And I did I didn't really didn't work very much for uh, for about a year, and um, and then started started doing some consulting. Um, didn't really know. Really did, didn't want to get too deeply involved in any, anything. So I did um, consulting for everything from yeah, boat companies, materials companies, um, uh, rep group, a uh, uh, canoe company in Canada, uh, paddle company. You guys are very familiar with. Um, um, and. Um, so I was uh, a, a trade organization. So I was. I still was very involved in the in the paddle sports scene, and, but not overly involved in any one company.
2: Until until um, Jackson came and rescued you from this days of endless TV and solitaire. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah,
4: exactly. You know, Jackson started out the same way. It was just. You know it was just it was a small part of what i was doing and um um but the reality was is you know that was that was such a a natural fit and you know here's a whitewater Rotomata white run them whitewater boat company i mean i've been there done that you know yeah uh at some
2: point someone at some point along the way though you became a lot more serious i mean, a lot more involved in jackson
4: Sure. Yeah. Was there a was
2: there a specific point in time when that happened, or was it just sort of gradual over the years? That sort of it was more
4: gradual. Yeah. It what drew like,
2: what drew you to that? What drew you to eventually go all in and and get
0: back in in the position you were?
4: always,
2: drop. I think I got to answer that. It's, it's EJ, EJ's natural yeah. charisma would <laughs> what? Natural charisma, is what drew you I, in.
4: My natural charisma.
2: No, EJ's.
4: <laughs>
2: How can you say no? <laughs> he knows well, the I secret.
4: Said he said me. no to him a lot of times. <laughs> he
2: told me if you ask like 10 times nicely, no one can say no. And then he proceeded to go into McDonald's and ask someone for a free hamburger. And after three or four times, she gave him a free hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> damn it. She's right.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so so, so, no, no, so no, give us the no, details no, on no, that no, transition.
4: to it. No, you know, this is this brand that I, you know, it's. Was obviously a, a very significant brand in the lightweight in the world. Yeah, you know, I you know I'd known EJ for a long time, and and, and um, yeah, certainly went in with with a, a fair bit of trepidation, but that that was all the more reason to to go in slowly and sort of see where things see where things landed. And um, so it, it's been a, it's been fun. Jackson's I mean, so Jackson starts out, I mean, when, when
2: EJ started out, he was pre vocal of being a whitewater company. He was going to make whitewater kayaks. Um, and over over the years, he, I, 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 I'm asking this, I have a, I, I'd love to know exactly, I have a theory on this and I want to know if I'm right or not, is that my theory is, is that he started making whitewater boats and he made a lot of whitewater boats. I mean, a tremendous amount of whitewater boats and somebody was paying for these boats. I, it wasn't EJ because I know EJ is not flush with cash. Um, but there was a time in the mid '90s where he was making boats, whitewater boats for everybody. Uh, a great benefit to retailers and paddlers alike. A terrible, a terrible time for whoever was giving this money. I mean, it's got to be really expensive and not very profitable to make these kayaks like that. Um, I mean, and at some point, he, someone has to come in and say, "Hey, you got to stop this," uh, and you have to start making other things like fishing kayaks or whatever you're going to make. Um, is that is that more or less how how it plays out?
4: Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: And is he? Is he? I mean, EJ. I mean, I mean, say what you will at EJ. He is. He has been tremendous help to the to the sport. You, you know what I mean? He's obviously very passionate about whitewater kayaking. Was how did he take this transition into a bigger well, company? Well, he
4: had, Yeah, he had started this transition before I got there. In that they made a boat called the Day Tripper, right? Which was not very successful, and and. Um, I think they, I think they were questioning. You know, do we know how to do this? Um, do we know how to do anything beyond? And, I, and your assessment all of, this, of all this, John, is, you know, is pretty, pretty spot on. Uh, um, um, yeah, somebody had. Uh, EJ's had a partner from the very start. Tony Lunt, really good guy. Really, you know, really, um, he, he's, he's. Um, um he's not a business person first and a um he he's definitely he is inter- he was he's been interested in putting money into this business to uh because because I mean obviously he wants it to do well and wants to see financial return, but, but he's also very interested and has gotten to know a lot of people that that work there and knows that they're in a in an area where there aren't a lot of jobs, and if it weren't for this company, a lot of these people wouldn't be doing so well, and that really matters to him. It really matters to him a lot. And, and not only that, there was—he grew up. Uh, he grew up kayaking. He's, he's uh, Belgian. He's Belgian by birth. and, and uh, Learned to paddle there, and uh, is we would we'll have uh, we'll have board meetings, and I'll be trying to pay attention and be involved, and and um Tony'll Tony be on his computer and'll be looking at stuff and he'll take his computer he Joe, show Joe says, hey Joe you remember this picture of hermit you remember that <laughs> I mean but here's a guy so, I mean yeah, he's got a, he's got a real passion for the, for, the, for the sport too
2: I mean his name's his name's Tony Lys right right this is somebody I, I mean pretty much every boater who who learned to boat in the mid-2000s should know this guy and thank him because Without him, there's a lot of small people and kids and big guys who would not have whitewater kayaks. And there was no one doing it. No one with the right mind, honestly, with, would do it from a strictly from a business standpoint. I mean Dagger would never make the breadth of kayaks that DJ that was making during that time. Um, or Jackson, I should say. I shouldn't say Jen.
4: Yeah, we we um, we didn't have uh, if if we needed money we had to go to the bank and borrow it and they wanted it back. Right. <laughs> So, are you still as involved with Dagger, or as
2: with with Jackson, or are have you taken a step back? No, definitely. No, i have taken a,
4: a a significant step back, and I'm uh, no longer on the board there, and um, just a a uh, just a part-time consultant.
2: Why is that? Was there any reason for that, or you just you're just over it?
4: Don't. Yeah, um, totally, uh, because I was. Um, uh, I have too many other things going on in life to to work full time, right? So I have a
2: couple questions to ask. Now that we've discussed your history and your pet your pedigree, um, this is a problem that's that's vexed me for for many for many years, and one that I brought up often on the show.
3: There has this has all just been a prequel to this. That's right. well hobby that's horse. The the only reason you're here you're for years. That's right.
1: <laughs> the,
2: there has as far as I know, there's never really been a successful standalone whitewater kayak company in the United States. Right? At some point they either get acquired or they start having to make uh, you know, different kinds of boats, sea kayaks or fishing kayaks or whatever, to stay afloat.
4: Or they or they're gone in a matter of a few years.
2: Right. Um, and you start looking at each individual case and some of the things were circumstantial. well dagger was just acquired at the most popular point in our sport
4: yeah but we liquid were logic, we were we were already doing other types of boats too
2: liquid logic uh you know obviously had a screwy you know set up from the get-go i mean in terms of at least in terms of outsourcing boats to remcon um, and not making themselves uh you know you can look at specific examples of every of every kayak that's come and gone or, or been acquired and Come up with a really distinct reason as to why that happened, but do you think it's possible for someone to nowadays to say like, "I'm just going to make whitewater boats"?
4: Oh, sure, it's possible for somebody
2: to say that. But I mean, <laughs> could the company run, or is company, is it just not feasible? it's just the, well, the cost of whitewater too expensive to support?
4: Well, I think I think you can define what you know. What what do you, what do we what do you mean by successful? What do you mean by support? I mean, if you're thinking. You know, if the four of us got together and said, "Hey, let's start." You know, we know we know everything. we we know everything about kayaking, and yeah. we've got we we got all the connections. Let's let's go buy an oven. Let's let's design a boat. Let's um, build build boats and sell them. Could we do it? Yeah, uh, we could do it. Um, yeah, but
2: we'd have to pay each other. We'd have to pay ourselves like twenty thousand dollars a year. And after two or three years, you know, we might do
4: that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's really, it's really, really hard. I mean, it's you know, it's going to take a couple hundred thousand dollars just to get started at, at, a, at a at a low level, and right. and um, you know, I mean, there there, there are a lot of. It, I, I think I think it could be done if you want a cottage industry. You know, if you're willing to if you're willing to mold boat yourself. Mm-hmm. and and then um get on the phone and call people and, answer, and return calls about sales and probably probably do a direct sale model mm-hmm. cut the retailer out and put yourself a little you know shop five miles from the takeout of the Okoe and or the or the dock or somewhere and, and uh, some where people are a destination where people are going to go and sell boats for Nine hundred, a thousand dollars direct to the consumer, and do a limited number. Um, you could probably do that as a cottage industry and, and make a reasonable uh, living for yourself. Certainly better than being a, you know, being a raft guy. But, but, build a company that that, uh, that has value and that you can employ others and they have health insurance and a 401k and etc it's pretty tough i mean you know you've got seasonality to deal, seasonality to deal with especially john uh, john weld you know this if you're you know in this you're, you've got a big chunk of of your uh, of your assets or, or what people, what your dealers owe you you know mm-hmm. it's, it's tough um
2: how many how many wet boats were sold how many water kayaks were sold every year in the United States?
4: United States, I don't know. Top of my head, guess 15,000 maybe.
0: Fifteen thousand.
4: What about yeah.
0: what about kayak fishing boats?
4: Kayak fi- fi- kayak fishing boats. Um, I guess um, uh, sixty. You know, some some of this comes into how do you define a fishing boat? Um, but my guess, off the top of my head. Sixty thousand. So fifteen thousand whitewater
0: boats, about sixty thousand kayak fishing boats,
4: and, and that could that could be off by quite a bit on that. But that's a that's that's a guess. And how how many you,
0: how many? Want, oh, I'm sorry, Joe. What were you going to say?
4: I was going to say, if you want to look at you know recreational kayaks, I mean, it's it's hundreds of thousands. How many What's RPMs were sold? How many what? How many RPMs were sold? We were making, uh, we had two molds running all the time, and if I remember correctly, we were making from 1996 when it was introduced, 1996, yeah, until probably uh, 1999, close to about 8,000 a year. Oh wow. So are you suggesting
2: that was half of the boats sold every year?
4: No, the market was a lot bigger then.
2: Oh, how many boats were being sold
4: in nineteen ninety six? How many whitewater whitewater were sold in nineteen ninety six? Yeah. Uh, two to three times as many as now. Wow. And and we had um, a mold in Australia and we had a mold in in uh, in England.
2: So what what happened? I mean why why did this why does an industry crater like that?
4: I'm sorry, why? why? why
2: what happened, are your people just buying, we have the same number of participants who are just buying fewer boats, or what's the, or we just have less participants?
4: No, you know, the last time I looked at participation, and I looked not only at the the numbers that people like Outdoor Industry America and Forest Service do, which are pretty, you know, they're valuable, but, but you can't put too much faith in them. Um, somebody said, "Did you go whitewater kayaking last last year?" And if you, you know, people who went whitewater rafting might say yes. You know, so you, mm-hmm. those, those numbers are pretty suspect. But but looking looking also at um, at um, data where there's where there is um, good data on usage on on rivers, a lot of the rivers that are you know rivers that are permitted are kind of capped, so they give you an artificial level-looking number. You know. But, but rivers like, like the Ocoee, uh, the Chattahoochee, those are two in my neck of the woods that, that there's pretty good data on how many kayakers use, you know, how many user days of kayaking are on those rivers. And it, it, it peaked in uh, 99, 2000, and has declined significantly since. So hmm. so it's not just that people are buying fewer boats, it is that it is that there are fewer high water kayakers or or fewer whitewater kayaking days. Anyhow, so maybe we're maybe there's just as many of us, but we're older and don't go out as much anymore. I don't know, and aren't replacing replacing ourselves with younger 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 paddlers. But it all it all peaked right around there. It would be
3: really interesting to get that that data from the Lower yacht. I feel like they're like so rigorous about making everybody sign in and keeping that, that yeah. information. You know, like that would be a really good. Place to tap into yeah,
4: yeah, at one point I don't know I did, I did a pretty good bit of research I can't remember if, if that was one I, one that I got or not Joe I paddled the one I got. really yeah I, paddled the surprising. I I've paddled well, it, if you did I've, the upper
2: you got the, you got the better one I've paddled it one
0: time I swam <laughs> you went upstream too with me <laughs> yeah exactly that was great but, so looking into your crystal ball Joe what 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 do you see as the future? You know, when you're sitting in the boardrooms and you guys were discussing it year after year, what do you see the trends being? I mean, do we have a shrinking retail base? Is the direct model going to be the answer? Is it going to be like Bass Pro Shop, where you buy a tracker boats and you distribute them yourself? What do you what do you see happening?
4: And and, and John, you're referring to whitewater here? Oh.
0: Yeah, I'm primarily referring to whitewater. Yeah.
4: Um. Well, you know, I don't know that I have a any any better crystal ball than anybody else. If I did, I'd be, um, I guess I would have figured all this out a long time ago. But but um, yeah, you, you know, the good the good thing is is that whitewater kayaking, even though it's I you know, say it's half what it what it used to be, I think it's I think it's leveled out a lot. I don't think it's you know we didn't have a a uh, an inline skating or or, or um, um, surfing know sailboarding type of boom and bust you know uh-huh. we got uh-huh. pretty good pretty good growth and then kind of a pretty good you a pretty fairly strong dip and then it's been pretty pretty steady since from from what i see and maybe with some you know slight still slightly declining but not tanking i know our i mean our sales at at, at jackson of whitewater are pretty have been pretty level over the last you know last 10 years right? you know it really hasn't. It really hasn't uh, declined. On that. It's still a, yeah, it's, it's still a really important part of, of Jackson's business in terms of, of making that business viable. It's it's um, it's a huge part, um, and and um, you know, much more so I'm sure than say, say um, Dagger is to Confluence. Uh,
2: would would Jackson ever go to a direct to customer model with at least with Whitewater?
4: Well, I'm I'm not one to ever say um, never, because you don't you really don't know what circumstances are there. I yeah. think Jackson has put a, a really strong emphasis on on supporting the the specialty retail base, um, but as you know, as I mean, I would have never I would have never foreseen competing like we do against Asian brands. I mean, that's a that's that's challenging. I saw I saw a brand new it was an REI uh, Monday here in Greenville, only because it's next to, the, to Whole Foods. So I poked my head in. There's a Riot Magnum in REI six ninety nine. Oh, ouch! Right, man. You know, and I don't know why. I'm, I mean, REI hadn't been in the Whitewater game for years. Why it's even in there? I don't know. But selling a you know selling a boat through a retailer at six ninety nine I mean yes. we can't we can't do that. There's no way we can we can do that if it comes down to that, and and that's all we had to compete against. Uh, who knows? So I would never never say never, but that's certainly not that's certainly not the uh, the future that we talk about when we uh, when we we, uh, uh, we we discuss that possibility. But you know, but it's, you know it, I think we. We care enough about the viability of whitewater, and know that without retailer support, you know, whitewater would not thrive in a lot of communities. Yeah, you know, the the you know the the retailers are often a big part of the impetus of keeping you know, pool sessions going and right. having 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 class you know classes and doing um, doing. Um, um, instruction for for beginners and having programs etc
0: uh, you you may not know this joe but we had a gentleman on the show a young man his name's josh picaric who has recently started a kayak and you may not know that people are right now starting whitewater kayak companies which i think is pretty interesting yeah. but what advice would you give to josh or someone who so wants he, to get into this industry he's starting a kayak company he's making them in asia he's trying to figure out a way to mer- make it work what what, what advice would you give to somebody like that? Well,
4: I'm not sure I want to give him any advice. Still, still Get out. <laughs> and care about, about the other brands that are here. Um, um, and I if we're past the, the stage of don't do it, um, uh, he's past um, that. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah i mean he can he should t- he should talk to core addison some i don't know um, yeah. um
0: my advice would be love the struggle
4: <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> it's not gonna be easy it's you know he's he's got i mean importing container loads of kayaks i mean you know how how hope he, hope, hope hope for his sake he's got a good motor who's making kayaks um, making recreational kayaks itself for for uh, $199 at Walmart is one thing, making kayaks that people are going to be, you know, just abusing. And, and, it's, and it's sort of a conundrum that we have now with, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the limitations on kayaks and people, I've been taking people my age and, and not quite, and not, not even my age um, out uh, some lately. And it's, it's, it's uh, one of the biggest struggles they have is not the cost, it's the weight of the boats. Mm. You know, boats are heavy now. You know, we started, I started paddling, you know, we, we the boats, the glass boats we built were usually under 30 pounds. And even when we started making plastic boats, they were low 30s. And now, you know, when you're low 40s, depending on the boat, that's just a lot to, for a lot of people to, to lug around. But if we make anything any lighter, and one of you guys buy it, you're going to take it and destroy it your first time down the river, and ask us for a new one. So you, know, you yeah. that's totally
2: it. Grace's M.O. <laughs> By the way,
4: you gotta, you gotta, that, that's a balance that, that's really hard, and and you have to be pretty pretty savvy as a rotomolar to to do that to get the plastic in the right places to to. Uh, to take the abuse, but, but not end up with a 55 pound boat. So, um, so my first, my first bit of advice is and you know, know your, know your molder. Well, make sure you've got a good, um, ultrasound thickness tester and you're going over your, your, you, uh, you know how to control plastic and, and uh, spend a lot of time with your molder.
2: So maybe you can explain something to John Grace because I think he's, He's uh, really ignorant on the subject, but we—he was trying to explain to me the other day that you could start a whitewater boat company and completely outsource the roto molding to another U.S. manufacturer and still have that be a workable business, a la Liquid Logic and Remcon. And I was trying to explain to him that there was simply not enough money left between the roto yeah. molder, and you, and the retailer, got, and everybody got, else.
4: I mean, I mean, bottom line, you—you've got you know, say three hundred dollars profit in a boat. And that, right. That's but that's before you pay for any marketing expenses. That's before you pay for any salespeople. And that's before you have you know bad debt that where you have a retailer go out of business and doesn't pay you. And that's before you have accounting people to send out the bills and, and do the tax you know do your, your paperwork and all that stuff. So I mean, you divide that in half. And there's just not much. There's just not much left. Yeah. You know? If you did if you did that and did it on a direct model and get your get your your margin up um, you have a, you have a serious volume problem can you with that volume. yeah can you, then can you do, can you sell more than a i mean the days of having some i mean you know i was in it i was really lucky to be in it at the right time with with dagger and had a boat like you know had we had you know a string of really successful boats you know the the crossfire was was a was a huge hit and then you know and the and certainly the rpm you know and we just don't I mean there there's not a model out there there's not even the market's more divided up now that nobody's nobody's gonna nobody's gonna sell six or eight thousand of a model a year of one mm-hmm. size. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah super interesting. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, was, that was great plus plus I don't remember exactly but date back uh, you know 1998 when we sold so dagger. I think the cost of a uh, of a um, of a uh, RPM was just right out of thousand or eleven hundred dollars. And if you t- if you take into account inflation, I'm sure that's less than boats cost now. And you know we, that boat didn't even have a backband in it. Yeah, it had it had, a, it, had a, it literally did not have a backband. It was it was a hull. You know, had some grab handles and and. Um, um, yeah, you know, seat, a couple of walls, and uh, and foot braces. And that was it. Yeah, you know, like I said, I probably have thermoform thigh braces. Yeah, look at that and compare the outfit. And, you know, cost that goes into a boat now. You know, we've 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 kept all that domestic at Jackson. We're and that's it's been it's been really hard. We're looking at some alternatives there. Maybe maybe switching some things because it's so.
2: I mean why can't we ch- I mean I think a wet water boat should be two thousand dollars. I'm sure customers or listeners out there are gonna love that kind of idea, but
4: I mean to make it to make it viable they should they should be much more expensive than they are.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. So how does IR get rolled up I, I want to I w I wanna I wanna get rolled up somehow. I'm not sure how, I don't really care who, how crescent, never, Hey, not. we,
4: we talk, when did we talk about that? Nineteen 19- 96, 97.
2: <laughs> that kind of blew me away. These dagger came very close to buying IR at one point.
4: Yeah, we had we had we had an annual shareholders meeting, and um, we and the, the really the only purpose of the shareholders meeting was to get together and and uh, have a meal and drink, and and we had we had one outside investor, and that was the the parents of Pete Jett um, one of the partners, because Pete didn't have any cash. When I mean, we started Dagger, with forty thousand dollars. Oh wow! Yeah, ten ten thousand dollars each is what we put into it, and wow. that's that's really all we had. And Pete didn't have that, so so uh, so his parents became shareholders because they put some money in. Pete didn't have the money, so um, um, so they were our outside investors. So so. Uh, they put ten thousand dollars in at the start. So so anyhow, they came down, but every year they, they enjoyed coming down to our, our shareholders' meeting and and we would vote on um and on the board, which was most, which was which was us. We would just pick different different uh, different people to be considered the board every year. And we would um, we would set a value of our stock price in case anybody wanted to buy or sell somebody else's stock. And um, and, and, but we also used it sort of as an annual board meeting too. And we would vote on some things. We always came to an agreement, never really voted on anything that was contentious. We always kind of worked it out and all came around to agree into the same thing with, with one exception. And that one exception ever was the purchase of IR. Right. And, Very and, controversial. Yeah. There was, it was, <laughs> I think it was like a, you know, a, fourth week or, or a, uh, something like that. I can't, Was there I can't,
2: screaming and yelling and people like, were you for it? Only, you...
4: only ate the bridge is like, don't do it. Don't <laughs> do it. Don't tell me were
0: you for it or against it, Joe? Uh, I don't I, need to know the answer. Florida, <laughs> I do. Sure. <laughs> well, Joe, we're going to, we're, we're running short on time here, but I want to, I want to get off the business topic for a little bit. I got two things I want to – I was looking into your bio, bio a little bit. One thing says you don't know your middle name.
4: I, I know my middle initial is J. But you don't know your middle name? My um, my mother says it was Jefferson. No, excuse me. She said it was Johnson. My father said it's a J, and it's nothing but a J, and don't ask questions about it. And, uh, and, is, and, and I'm the third, so um, – and my grandfather, who was the first, says it was Jefferson. But mm-hmm. uh, but the story I did hear internally was that originally it was Johnson. But when when um, um, but my grandfather disliked LBJ, and even though I was born way before LBJ, so I don't know how much sense this makes. So. Um, even though it originally was Johnson, he said, "No, it's not Johnson. It's Jefferson." So, <laughs> how, so about, it, how about how yeah, about Jackson? Uh, it's called it Jackson. <laughs> sure, Jackson. For sure, it's not John. <laughs> and but then, uh,
0: and then one more thing. Where where do you go? Where do you go whitewater paddling? What's your favorite place? Where do you go paddling? What's uh, your favorite? I
4: mean, my 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 special place in the world is the Chattuga and mm. yeah, probably. Um, if I paddle 20 days a year now, which is probably about what my body allows me, um, um, probably you know, 10 of those are on section four of the Chituga and the other 10 are scattered out amongst everything else. I'm doing a Middle Fork of the Salmon trip in late May, so I'm looking forward to that, because that's one I've not done. I'm doing a self-support there. And um, yeah, the Chituga's, the Chituga's it for me. Do you know the Long Creek Gangsters? No. Okay. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know. anybody who claims that name. That's shocking. There's yeah. Some of the young, <laughs> some of the there. Yeah.
0: There's some. There's some
4: millennial friends of mine. You know. Yeah. There's some hot. There's some hot. I've, I've I've sat and watched watched some uh, you know kids doing loops at soccer Dog and and uh, uh, laps and doing you know doing you know various uh, various aerial moves and stuff. You know yeah are pretty impressive so
0: there's some good kids i was just wondering if you ran across those guys on the river
4: i've, I've, I've seen them but but uh just you know when i'm out paddling i really you know i'm, I'm, I'm the last person who is ever going to go over and say hey i see you got a dagger boat right there i started daggering.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so
4: that's what do when i'm on the river.
2: so we, we have some viewer mail here we're, we're not going to have time for the viewer mail John. Let's just do the Billy Hearn one, because this will just take a second. Okay. Jump into Billy Hearn. All right. All right. So you know Billy Hearn, right? I know Billy. Sure. We discussed the other day about blade shape, right? And when asymmetrical blades started getting used in Whitewater. And here's his thoughts on it. Now, I bring this to your attention because it involves Keith Backlund, who, as far as I know, <laughs> owned the Dagger name before you guys started Dagger. Is that right?
4: Um, yes. Keith so, Backland and Drew... Um, drawing a blank, yeah.
2: Well, anyway, Billy Hearn wrote us and offered this. To the best of my knowledge, Keith Backlund was the first paddle maker to produce an asymmetrical blade for whitewater that wasn't specifically for wildwater water flatwater racing. Would that sound... I'll continue. uh, Backlunds were the pinnacle of wood paddlecraft, and many are still being paddled on whitewater 30 years after they were built all slalom kayak blades prior to the backland slasher were symmetrical the backland slasher was licensed to schlegel a german paddle synthetic uh synthetic paddle maker sometime around 1985 and i believe the profusion of asymmetrical whitewater blade shapes that began in the 90s are inspired by the backland slasher that all sounds kind of right to me i
4: can't argue with that but i don't know if that's true yeah i mean what date 1985
2: yeah, I don't know when Backlund made the slasher blade, but I, I remember when they came
4: around. Yeah, I mean, most of my time with with Keith was long before that, and I know the the early paddles I have from him. Um, the the I mean, my first my first asymmetrical paddle was made by Keith, and that was in probably eighty. That was probably about eighty five when I had, first one I had was that was a New World branded. I still have it, still in really good shape. Yeah, I still have my my backline as well, and it's in great shape. Yeah, I've, got, I've got several several of Keith's battles. Um, but I, I, Billy's probably more versed on that. And Billy, I know spent you know, a good bit of time with Keith um, much mm-hmm. later in life than I did. So that's true. Yeah.
0: Okay, we're running out of time here, and and I I queued Joe in on this that uh, we are going to get into everybody's favorite segment here, rants and raves. I hope uh, you have a Rant Ready Joe or Rave. Um before we do that, I want to give a shout out to our Rants and Rave sponsor, Kaleva. Kaleva's Liquids Adventures may have the largest commercial kayak program in the US, maybe the world. Each spring we take over 90 paddlers out on an 8-week training program to get them ready for the Cheat River Race the first Saturday in May. Our program includes attaining up the Mather Gorge and the Potomac River, downriver sprints, and technique drills. So dust off your longboats and meet us at the river. Go to Kaleva.org to find more information about cheat training and also our Oregon semi-stout trip. Hmm. Largest commercial kayak program in the world. We'll have to talk about that on a later show, but now let's get into rants and raves. Who, who's ready to lead us off? Yeah,
3: I'll rave. Um, I Just like, listening to, to everything Joe was saying, I just kept thinking about, like there are so many people who you know, like on the business side of the sport can make these contributions that are just like so much broader than their own interests and some of it's like accidental and i think maybe some of it's by design but like just what weld was saying earlier about how you know jackson by creating this like super wide range of boat sizes you know how much that benefits like ir because all of a sudden there are people out there who have a kayak they can use so they're going to buy like a triple xl dry suit or
1: right.
3: you know gear for somebody who's really small or we like thinking about you know like all the media that you know someone like Rush makes where it's like I mean like every you know like every manufacturer that does anything in wetwater is benefiting from like what Rush does, what Evan does, like what those guys who are doing like super high end media does because like they make kayaking cool, you know? It's like they're not just selling the brand of boat that they're paddling. Like they're selling the sport. You know, and like I was thinking a lot about like what Corrin is doing with like his new boat company it's like, you know, like, I I can't opine on the you know, specifics of what he's doing. But to me, like, what's going to progress kayak design is somebody just like cycling through new designs really, really, really rapidly. It's like, all of a sudden, there's not a new boat coming out every three years, there's like a new boat coming out every, you know, six weeks. And it's like, that's where the progression is going to come from. And somebody, you know, just like, Horn's whole career, it seems like, has been creating these designs that are, like, not quite there yet, but have something innovative about them that somebody else takes and refines and turns into something that you know, is really is cool, you know, and it's like, to me, that's progressing the sport, and it's just, it's cool to see things like that that are just, have that really wide benefit for everybody, even if it's not you know, necessarily what they're setting out to do, I don't know mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Joe
4: um no, nothing planned but I, I I uh I I've been correspondents yesterday and today with uh Scott McGregor and um at Rapid Media and then talking with you guys today here I think yeah just I guess I would call it, this would be a a rave and that you know in this changing world of what media is that people um people like you guys and like Scott are keeping uh, keeping the the, the the tribe together if you will you know that there are ways that we can connect and and it, to me it's it, it's much more real and much more uh, personal and much more accurate uh, portrayal of what passinging is all about than when even when I uh, even back in the eight even back in the in the 70s when I first got into this the uh, the the magazines that were available the few that that were around were uh, really, pretty much corporate interest, and now, now the the media is uh, is real grassroots level, and I think that's uh, I think that's giving a a, a good a good um, view view of the of the core of what our little uh, our little world's all about. I love that. That's really good. Even I admit I didn't know that that's true. So I, I can, can I before we go, I, I got one question to ask you guys, and that's. <laughs> That's about your logo, you know. <laughs> your logo.
2: We don't know. Ask Grace.
4: Why your you know you're asking about kayak, whitewater kayaking only on your logo? You've got a mountain bike and, a, you know, somebody riding a horse or something. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I, think,
3: I think. Grace might have had a different vision for this podcast when we started than what it's right. turned
2: into. Grace <laughs> is desperately trying to figure out an angle to make money out of this, and Lewis and I are thwarting with every single step yes. by keeping it in white water. There's,
4: <laughs> always, there's always one in the crowd. that's just right? money. <laughs> <laughs> now I know who it is. Yeah, you just, right. just
0: in it for the money? This is how you're corning me here with the Hammer Factor and the countless hours <laughs> I put <it> into <laughs> this bullshit? Like this is the dumbest like thing I've ever heard in blank. my life.
2: Like logoed flasks from one of the people who listen to our show, we don't know where they are. <laughs> T shirts they just go to John and they stay you there.
4: Well gonna get <laughs> I'm
3: gonna set that The, the real s- wealth of camera factors s- being generated is all, all the shirts that are being mailed in and are being taken down to like Goodwill. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
4: well, one final question when does the check come, John? Yeah, yeah. it's in the mail. When does the check come, John? <laughs> I'm dying to know. <laughs> oh my god, how did
0: this
2: turn on me? Well, do you have anything to rant about or do you just want to like just... uh, da- Yeah, I do. The Dagger Outburst. The I want to Dagger Outburst was like my favorite boat for probably 4 or more years, which in my lifetime, that is probably the longest I've ever loved a boat. So that was an underrated classic.
4: Yeah, that was that was, that was a fun. I had one of the I had one of those that kind of got lost. I, I do miss it. That was fun. Speed, yeah. speed, slice-y. Yes,
2: I'd love to find one of those and and take it under my wing.
4: So. I, uh, I, I was when um, when Adam, at, Adam 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 memorial service uh, might have been Cat Potts that was paddling one. It was a really pretty color and it was it was just in pristine shape. And it's like I it was it's one of the few boats I've lusted over in a long time. Yeah, that was a good one. Who designed that? Was that a Mark Lyle boat? No, that was more. That was a more more of Spees, and and he wanted that longer length and more speed. Yeah, I mean it was Steve. Steve did most of the design work, but um, that was that was a spee inspired boat.
0: Well, Joe, thank you so much for coming on. That was awesome, incredible yeah, wealth thanks, of knowledge Joe. there. And that was and, great. Uh, yeah, when we I look uh, forward
4: to it. let me know when uh, let me know when this is, is goes live.
0: I will send a link your way, and I'll also let you know when we redesign the logo. (laughs)
4: All (laughs) right. (laughs) Good to see you, guys. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks thanks for coming on.
2: One of these days, I have an awesome story about Billy Hearn and myself and a guy named Eric Martin and some police and helicopters and hiding out on an island and Billy clubs.
3: We should have Billy on for that story. I feel like he's well versed in the telling of it.
2: If we have, if we have four, let's say four listeners write in and say they want to hear the story, I will retell that story. A view with clubs on an island with Billy Hearn and helicopters, helicopters, a world champion getting beaten by, with by cops. It's 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 quite a scene. A, a town rallying together to hide us. That's
3: kind of a that's kind of a plea for attention there.
2: Well, you shouldn't have to get four <laughs> listeners right in to get you to tell that story. You should just tell it. I'll tell next week. How's that?